Hello, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world. It is Friday the 13th of February, um, a day before Valentine's Day, one of these uh, big uh, buy a car, card and flower day, if you are into that sort of things. Already here in Sydney, Australia, um, there are people selling roses everywhere for about um, 10 bucks a pop, which um, for one rose, which... I don't know, sounds a little bit expensive to me. But anyway, we're not going to editorialize around that. It's episode 55 of the It's a Monkey podcast. Thank you for joining us wherever you are in the world. Remember, you can listen to previous episodes of the podcast um, at itsamonkey.com. Um, two weeks ago in episode 54, we had a great chat about Uber um, and uh, spoke to a um, institutional investment manager about whether Uber makes a good investment or not. So if you go to itsamonkey.com, you can listen to that podcast. We have a fantastic show coming up for you today. Um, later on in the show, we interview Nir Eyal, who uh, is based in uh, Silicon Valley, uh, San Francisco, and he's the author of Hooked, How to Build Habit Form in Products. And uh, I had a great chat to him and um, about all sorts of interesting um, topics on the intersection of psychology and behavior and technology. And uh, that's coming up later on in the show. But as usual, we're going to start with the news. And um, happy to say for the first time in a long time, we've got James Peter, the co-founder of Manage Flutter, in the studio. James, uh, good to have you back in the studio. Yeah, definitely good to be back. It's, uh, it's been a while uh, that we've been doing this podcast, since we've been doing this podcast face-to-face, so... Yeah, no, a bit of a different experience rather than doing it with Skype. Yeah, I don't know how long it's been. And uh, Chelsea and um, Charles have been helping out and doing a great job. And uh, Yeah, no, the podcast has been good. I haven't listened to the latest one because I was traveling, but uh, the other ones I listen to, they're, they're pretty good. Yeah, yeah, look, Chelsea's a bit of a natural. She doesn't believe me, but uh, she is. I think there is also something about the having uh, male-female presenters. I think it's very popular in um, FM radio to have male and female presenters. They s- sort of work, bounce off each other quite well. Mm. Yep. It's going to make some joke about sexual tension. It's <laughs> probably not appropriate. No, no, no. Definitely. Um, not, not in this case. So. Yes. Yeah, maybe in FM radio's case, but uh, anyway. I think that's what they play off, yeah. Yeah. They, they, I, I don't actually listen to FM radio in Australia. I have to be honest. It's just... It, it annoys me to no end it's sort of just very pubescent yeah I, I used to listen to it when i was younger but yeah these days it's just it's hard to get into there's just so much too much talking Junk. and too much rubbish around it so yeah. when you've got spotify it's hard to go back to back to radio to me it's either spotify or um podcasts and uh yeah i mean sometimes i listen to there's a great radio station in sydney if you're into indie music FBI radio so uh, you can get get on online and just check out FBI radio fantastic radio station 50% of the music's from Sydney no sorry 50% is from Australia and 50% of that so 25% is from Sydney do you listen to FBI at all I used to when I was in uni I used to listen to it quite a bit Um, not these days but yeah definitely one of my one of the ones I would listen to if I did yeah, F- FBI is really cool. So if you're into indie music, very very indie heavy, um, but I that, that's my type of music, um, sort of navel gazing indie type of rock, keeps me young. My friends don't know what indie is. My my friends my age, it's my younger friends are like, wow, you know about London Grammar and Daughter and all of those bands, you know. You gotta find it before it comes cool. <laughs> exactly. Well, have you seen that video where they go to one of the festivals and they they start asking these people about imaginary bands? 
and they say, oh, you know, have you heard of, you know, your mm. grandfather's monkey? What do you think of their latest <laughs> album? <laughs> and they all go, yeah, oh, yeah, it's not like, yeah, you know, and everyone's just too, too embarrassed, you know, because I think they should know these bands. <laughs> and they just make up. Ah, uh, yes. Them, yeah. The psychology of being cool, right? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's anyway, let's, uh, um, let's, let's get straight into it. I'm just... Uh, just checking. It's been a while since I've recorded. Um, sort of, we use Logic Pro here to record. I'm just checking, checking everything's, everything's, everything's on track there. But it seems to be. Um, so, um, first of all, big big news story out of last week. Um, Twitter. I mean, in the previous uh, podcast, we spoke about Apple's massive, massive, massive earnings, and we also spoke about uh, Facebook's um, solid earnings. Google's earnings were okay, but Twitter's results have come out, James, and they were they were interesting. Um, revenue very solid, beat expectations, not by a, a huge amount, but enough to matter. Um, so revenue was 479 million for the quarter. Uh, analysts were expecting about 450 million, um, but up up nearly 100% on the same quarter last year. So uh, that was that was really big. Um, the users growth remains an issue the user growth is flattish or marginally big which um, uh, sorry a marginal increase um, so definitely not what twitter would like S they're still hovering around um, about 300 and 300 million users of course very you know, fraction of uh, twitter's 1 billion something plus users um, and um, what was interesting as well, I found interesting, James, was uh, Twitter said it lost 4 million users to an iOS bug. 4 million users to an iOS bug. What happened was that Twitter had some sort of auto-polling <coughs> through Safari that was wiped out in iOS 8, thus removing 3 million users. The other million users were lost during an encryption issue that didn't allow them to log into Twitter. Um, just I, I haven't really drilled down into this issue. Are you familiar at all what this what, what actually happened here? Um, I have looked into, into it in detail. Um, I'm just scrolling through it now. I mean, I suspect what probably happened was, um, yeah, the, they obviously broke something that um, that stopped a whole bunch of people from being able to actually access Twitter. And so for the period uh, through which those numbers were measured, there was a decrease by 4 million. Those 4 million people just weren't able to access Twitter um, because of this change. So it sounds like it was a change to do with Safari. So... Um, and perhaps Twitter just weren't prepared for it. They didn't realize it was going to happen. So essentially it probably broke their web app in, in Safari, um, which meant anybody act trying to access it that way um, couldn't get onto the site. Um, and so that obviously um, resulted in a decrease in um, usage. Um, so yeah, which is pretty crazy. <laughs> you can lose 4 million people over that. I mean, it also shows the importance of, of you know, ecosystems and uh, everything being connected to everything else and companies... On some level, having to work together um, because and and one left turn by one element in the ecosystem can really if you're on the, if you're on the wrong end of that. I mean, I also just saw an article that LinkedIn is clamping clamping down even further on its API. So um, you know, when you're building businesses and you're tied in with other companies, they can lock each other out. But that was that was quite interesting. But nonetheless, um, you know, Twitter's user growth is is definitely flattening. Um, but um, Y you know, there's there's still. Um, I, th I think Twitter are, are, are taking a, 
a measured approach. They can still afford to be. They're making good money. I mean, half a billion dollars per quarter is is very real money. Um, but of course, um, things can change very quickly in our industry. I think I think the problem will really come in if the user growth actually goes backwards. Mm. I think if if they if they have a quarter and the stock market, interestingly enough, reacted very well. I mean, it was up up I think as much as sixteen percent. It really really spiked the share price. So um, the stock market is is liking the story of um, you know the the uh, revenue um, being enough even despite the user growth. So um, but I think the stock market would really punish them if the user growth went backwards. If there was a net loss, I think they would really see the bottom fall out. So they 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 starting user wise starting to sail close to the wind in my opinion. But um, you know they're doing a lot of things right. They still own the real time space. They own the celebrity space. Um, and um, you know Dick Costello came out and uh, said some interesting things that Vine's going to be core to their strategy. Uh, Jason Calacanis, the well-known um, startup commentator, said um, you know on YouTube um, celebrities you know aren't really active on YouTube most celebrities and they're active on Twitter which is a very good point and if they start publishing videos and and there's a bit of a rev share agreement there suddenly there's a nice um, um, new revenue stream for even you know you know, you know um, second tier third tier celebrities and I think that's where um, you know Twitter sees a lot of its video technology they've they've launched also of course Twitter the Vine um, not the Vine, the native video app as well on mobile. So you can take a video yeah, on, on Twitter that just sort of pops it in, which Dick Costello, the CEO of Twitter, says um, is will complement Vine quite well. So they they um, they definitely um, doing a lot and fiddling around the fringes. But um, yeah, it's uh, that that user number just needs something needs to happen with mm. that user growth number. I mean, I mean, it could be the the whole Google thing, you know, the fact that they're putting the search results into the Twitter um, results into Twitter into Google searches. I mean, I think that you know could have a huge impact on Twitter's growth because um, suddenly there's uh, the visibility's raised. So that's another thing that happened in the last ten days is Twitter and Google announced that that um, Google's going to have access to the firehose of tweets to uh, be easily indexable and searchable, and they don't have to scrape them. So you. So you're saying that will make an impact because of uh, that people will become more familiar with Twitter? Well, I mean, if you think about it just in terms of, um, you know, most websites, in terms of websites, uh, in terms of where their traffic comes from, it's still, in most cases, 50% plus comes from Google. It's just, you know, you can't beat Google for being a referral source online. And even, and I guess when you're at Twitter's scale, there's kind of nothing that's going to make a dent in your user numbers pretty much other than, other than Google. Um, and um, if they have more traffic coming through Google, I mean, that could just instantly boost up vi their visibility, um, you know, boost up their, um, um, you know, their, their active users. I mean, obviously, a percentage of people who visit the site are going to convert. They're probably going to be a bit less targeted when they're coming from um, when they're coming from Google. But I think just in terms of raw numbers, it's just going to bump it up. Um, and if that integration works really well, I think that could be really good for both Twitter and Google. And yeah, I think there could really be a spike. I mean, it could be really dramatic. I, I wouldn't be surprised if um, 
if it was probably the you know it started doubling in traffic numbers in you know within six months or something if that was a really good integration for them and maybe that's what caused this the um, stock spike was the combination of the announcement with google com- combined with the good results yeah where the stock market thought well okay i, I would bet on it yeah <laughs> they, they, yeah they've got they, they've got a good base of revenue they've got a good base of users this this could be a little bit i mean I, of course this isn't um, you know, a few years ago, I think it was as far back as 2012, where Google did have access to the Firehose and Tweet to Index. I think Marissa Mayo was still at Google. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I remember it vividly where the tweets would come up quite nice and neatly, and then the plug was pulled on it for whatever reason. Obviously, uh, Twitter wanted too much, or, you know, there's, the, there's a lot of politics in Silicon Valley. A mm. lot of politics. Absolutely, yeah. Um, a lot of these people have worked with each other. They've worked at each other's companies, and uh, that helps in a lot of instances. But sometimes, it doesn't help. But mm. so, yeah. Um, I mean, if you think about it, uh, you know, if you're if you're sort of tech savvy and you, um, and you know, use Twitter regularly, you know, if there's something happening in real time, like you know, some disaster somewhere or something, you know, locally you want to find out about, you might search Google, and if Google doesn't come up with the right information, you go and search Twitter. Um, and I mean, we know about that stuff, but I know like my parents, for example, they're not going to know about that kind of stuff. You know, they're not going to think to go search Google, uh, sorry, search Twitter. So I'm sure there's a huge demographic of people out there who just aren't sort of familiar with the nature of where you would go and find that kind of real time information. And, you know, Google does its best, but it doesn't have, um, the data that Twitter does. So if it can start, you know, pushing that up, um, you know, that will absolutely, you know, I, I believe, you know, increase, um, you know, Twitter's visibility in the minds of, I think, just the average person. And um, and it's a self, a kind of self-completing loop as well. Like, I know I go to Twitter when I want to find real-time information. It's kind of the hook that brings me back. Um, and it's also the kind of the hook that keeps me posting as well. Like, you know, if there's something that's happening that I think other people might want to know about or who are nearby, I, I then post that information on Twitter. Um, so I think if you start consuming that real-time information, it would, um, it would result in more people publishing it as well. Um, so yeah, I, I, st- I think it's a great thing for them. So yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what the next, well, see if, see how the implement integration goes, I mean, obviously it's up to Google how they integrate it. It could be, you know, in not a way that's particularly good for Twitter if it's not really Twitter branded or doesn't link back, but I'd be very surprised if they, um, took that approach. So yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, in a way, I mean, has Google ever integrated besides Twitter? I mean, which they've done previously, have they actually ever integrated with any other, third-party service in that in this uh, way I mean kind of I mean if you I mean Google is always trying to push uh, the best response possible to your search query right so if you search for a certain term that most people go to Wikipedia for you're gonna see that definition yeah, in there for Wikipedia but, so but do there they is just scrape these I mean is, is Twitter one of the few it, pr- it probably does have a lot of data partners. I think in Google Maps, it's got a lot of data partners no, with traffic. Yeah, there's there's lots of that kind of stuff in flights and all kinds of things, weather, and yeah, there, there are actually plenty of examples where right. Google pulls in this data from third parties and publishes it in sort of a, um, you know, in, in their sort of style, but also still linking back to that third party. And, you know, I don't think you can really publish tweets without them, it, you know, without people being interested in the source. You can't, you know, just publish, you know, 140 characters and and you know without linking back to it and without people thinking about it in the context of twitter so um i, I think it'll work really well there's actually an article in the new york times yesterday <coughs> about is is you know has google peaked and it was quite interesting arguing that um 
the next race is not going to be won by Google and their revenue growth is down and they, you know, and um, they, they, they're really not winning mm. at social or they're not, they're not getting anywhere. Yeah. They're, they're not getting anywhere at social. And uh, still the large part of advertising revenue, um, you know, Google's making $50 billion, but there's $500 billion worth of ad re revenue and mof most of it goes to branding type of spend on TV and billboards and and uh, they um, you know they exposed through that through through um, YouTube but um, they still they're still not making headway anyway it's an interesting article if you're listening and you're interested in that just uh, have a look at the New York Times um, about Google Google reaching its peak has Google reached its peak mm. none of their sort of um, big projects I think really paid off recently it's um They've tried an awful lot of things. They still just haven't got anything that's, um, you know, anywhere near as successful as search and um, in, in um, AdWords. It's just, you know, I think it's just so hard to make a dent in that. I mean, it's really remarkable that they haven't um, cracked social. Mm. I mean, it's really, really, I mean, you know, they had Google Wave, they had Orkut, which Marissa Mayer was on record. I was at uh, her talk when she said um, <coughs> that one fell over due to infrastructure issues which is quite interesting you mm. know she said that that uh, just became so slow and because they they still owned quite a few markets Or orchid was popular in quite a few markets for quite a while it really hung in there and then of course with google uh, google plus as we tongue-in-cheek used to call it google minus um <laughs> has just really um you know they they um the ceo or the, the sorry the the google plus lead left a few months ago which was sort of symbolic of that they um really had lost faith that it was going anywhere i mean they're still building it out but it's almost just um you know in the background there now you hear nothing about it i don't know if it still helps with seo probably does um to to, to some degree but um it's really um you know had no impact it's it's really it really is quite quite amazing that they um and it's probably one of their biggest strategic blunders in a way or or tactical blunders that they haven't been able to 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 do anything or find an angle on social mm. that um look i think it just shows you just can't throw you know money and people you just can't throw resources at, at this problem you know you can't build a social site um you know through any other means than just stumbling across something that's interesting enough for everybody to want to pay attention to like it's you know and, and it's got to be new because you can't just copy twitter because there's never going to be another twitter you've got to come up with something new um and you know the play with google plus was always just to you know to take the best parts of what was out there and try and build something that was just that you know marginally a bit better and it's just it's not enough in social you've got to be sort of revolutionary to get that much much attention it was um, too complicated Mm. It was too I mean, it probably if I, you know, as I've said before, I like to play what if I was the CEO of game. <coughs> and if I was the CEO, I probably would have said, you know, Facebook has won because, because our grandmothers can use it, mm. you know. And yeah. they struggle through it, but they can use it. And I would have said just make the most simple social media, y y you know, site in the world. That's just, it's just, and look, it's easy for me to say here and I'm, yeah, haven't built a multi-squillion billion dollar company, but uh, I mean, uh, it just always seemed convoluted to me. You know, mm. the Android app yeah, was quite was. good, but um, the website was, I couldn't, I couldn't even work out, someone who lives and breathes social media, when I got on their web interface, I couldn't even work out what was my stream, their stream, 
how do I tag people properly? I mean, mm. I, to me, that's not a good sign. It looked, it looked nice. Look, look, I mean, I think all all networks face that. I think like even Twitter, when you first go go on it, you know, I remember in the other days, it's really hard to understand and you know what it meant. Um, but at least it was like new enough and interesting <laughs> enough, and um, y- you know, Facebook's not like that though. Uh, it was in the early days. Uh, really, in the early days, I mean, the it was onboard- tough. The onboarding. I mean, people onboard quite quite quickly. You know. I don't know. I mean, I, th- uh, I don't know if they do. I think it's still tough. I mean, people might like look at photos for a while and they might like see, you know, they might kind of occasionally log on and like see some of the public statuses and then create like an account to like, you know, see more statuses. I mean, it's a very slow process, I think, for Facebook for, for many people to onboard these days because they're obviously, if they're not doing it already, it's they're obviously reluctant to do so. Yeah, I don't know. I, th- I, think, I think all these technologies are tough to come on i think it, it really requires you know that that um that that you know x element that you just can't build it's you know it has to be new it has to have enough people talking about it because it's new and interesting um and there's no way to get to that point unless you build something revolutionary and that was definitely not google plus it was it was something but it's not it wasn't anything new so yeah and they try to acquire whatsapp but um facebook beat them to it and i don't know snapchat so one of them tried to I think f- was it facebook or Google, anyway. So, hmm. um, and, and which is interesting, actually, because if you think about it, and that was always Facebook's strategy with, with these acquisitions as well. It was they they haven't really tried to build one of these other networks themselves. They've just taken the very best and been really good at seeing what was the best that was out there, and the, then acquired them and then kind of left them alone. So, yeah, such a fantastic strategy they've had that yeah done really well. Yeah, I mean Snapchat's doing really well, and they. Um, there was uh, the first branded, uh, I think Madonna released a new video um, on Snapchat, mm. um, which has been significant. So Snapchats, mm. um, we should talk about Snapchat sometime or maybe get someone to talk about. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a, sna- I'm not a, I mean, I use Snapchat. Maybe I'd like some people use Twitter, like once every blue moon, I'll get something from someone or, t- or take something. But I know in certain demographics, I think the young female demographic, Snapchat <coughs> is, is massive. Yeah, really. Yeah. Don't think I've ever. I mean, I've installed it, I think, and then uninstalled it. That was about it. I was chatting to someone earlier this week, and they said um, there's a new chat app that's uh, that's taking parts of the world by storm. Um, I forget Telly something or other. Um, what was it? I installed it, but um, Telegram. Have you heard of Telegram? No. Apparently, it's. It was created by um, the guy who um, created the Russian Facebook. Oh, okay. VK is the name of it, uh, the Russian Facebook. And apparently he's taken some of that money and created um, this mm. WhatsApp type service. And apparently it's because apparently the, the whole thing with Telegram is it's encrypted end to end. Right, yeah. So it's the... Um People can't snoop on it. Yep, and which apparently everyone loves because they, you know, the governments are snooping on us now. And mm, um, also a good app. But if the Russians have created it, uh, excuse me for being cynical. And I've got a lot of Russian friends. <laughs> I love them dearly. Um, you know, back doors and things like that. Mm. You know. Yeah, entirely possible. Yeah. Enti- like you know, encryption's only as good as the people who created the encryption and. Uh, the protocols and uh, etc. And uh, to have a backdoor would be pretty simple, especially if you you know even if the developer's intent is good. If uh, you know the Russian regime sometimes uh, 
you know, it d- does things not totally above board. And if uh, they, they push you to, to create and, and give back doors. Um mm. Yeah, I mean, it's probably okay. I mean, I think it uses sort of end-to-end encryption, which I think is you can tell if it's using or not, which means they can't intercept it in the middle, um, in which case, um, you know, it's pretty secure, particularly if they're using, you know, modern accepted encryption methods as if they haven't sort of rolled their own, which I'd be very surprised that they did. Um, you know, there's there's no way, you know, anybody could be breaking it. So it's probably okay. I'd, I'd probably use it. Not for, you know, anything that's like super secret, but um, anything that's like slightly secret, I would probably why use it. Why do people, I mean, I don't know. There's nothing in my life that's super secret. I'm just, I don't, people must have seriously interesting lives. <laughs> you got to do more like interesting <laughs> things, Kevin. <laughs> you got to do more interesting things. It's like... Um, <laughs> It's like my barber, he's like, he, he will only buy a prepaid, you know, in Sydney, we got these uh, new smart card travel cards and he will only buy prepaid ones because mm. um, he does not like having to register and them having him and he insists, he says, I just come to work and go home every day. There's nothing, but I don't want them to track me. I'm like, oh, look, if they see that I go home to work every day, I really don't care. But look, I, I understand there's a philosophical element to it. and um, But do I care that people can snoop on my chats um, <coughs> yeah. yeah I mean th- there is there is some truth to that I mean in, even if you're not doing anything wrong I mean you can um, <laughs> you know people can take that data and, and you know and can use it to make it look as if you are doing stuff wrong so um, I mean there's certainly an element to that which makes sense um, but yeah look it's obviously not enough of a hook that you know, people are switching in droves to these kind of products, at least at this stage. Well, apparently I heard that um, there was a South Korean product that was hacked and or it was down or actually no. And, and also apparently WhatsApp was down <coughs> for five hours and, then and and a huge chunk of people moved over to Telegram. Okay. Hmm. Um, and this is where, I mean, Twitter's just rolled out a couple of new DM functionalities where you can m- send multiple people DMs, etc. I mean, th- this to me, and I've been saying for ages, is a lost opportunity of Twitter. I mean, they've lost, th- I think the window's closed already. But um, the whole messaging side of things, they just totally missed. I mean, they could have built out the DM feature into something, um, and they really missed that opportunity. Mm. Oh, it does look like a really good app, actually, I've been looking at it at the end. I might actually switch to it. <laughs> As long as you get the people you want to communicate with. Exactly, yeah, that's the only problem. You tend to be tied to the network where your friends are. Yeah, and the, ne- the network yeah. effect is very strong. But, yeah. you know, you can, if you, you have a couple of close friends, you can definitely push them to it, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, that's where Facebook's been s- smart. They bought WhatsApp, but Twitter's really lost, really lost, um, you know, people have hated the DM functionality on Twitter forever because it was so bad and, and how much has it evolved and whatever seven eight years hardly yeah, hardly much. at all and even this is like yeah <laughs> it's not a huge you know it's oh you can send dms to multiple people at once it's you know if they'd actually gone and fixed the spam filtering or something underlying it that was really stopping people from using it would probably be much more interesting but yeah exactly anyway that's um that's twitter's results let's uh talk about a uh, second news story um spacex which is elon musk's which is the American South African entrepreneur. Um, it's one of his companies. He was ex-PayPal, made a fortune from PayPal and using it to create all these fun companies like Tesla, electric cars and SpaceX. Um, they had some sort of launch this week, James? Yeah, so SpaceX been doing really well recently. Um, uh, they did have one um, failure 
I think it was about a month ago or three or four weeks ago. Um, so they're kind of reaching this final stage. Well, not final stages, but they're reading sort of reaching sort of advanced stages of the program where they're testing um, reusable rockets. Um, so these are their Falcon Nine rockets that basically can go up, um, take up the satellite to um, to orbit, and uh, the first stage can then come back down and land safely on Earth. Um, so and be reused. And be reused. Yes, this is a huge, huge step forward because uh, these things are obviously. Rockets are obviously very expensive to um, build and technically difficult. And, you know, once you've got one as well, you kind of know it works. It's like, you know, like any device, you know, the more you, you use it and test it, the more reliable, uh, you know, it is because it hasn't failed yet. Um, so this is a really big step forward in the space program. Have there ever been reusable rockets before? Uh, no, not rockets. I mean, obviously, there's the space shuttle yeah, program yeah. that was, you know, moderately successful for what it was aiming to do, but not the rockets themselves. So, no, this is definitely the first time. Um, and yeah, so they haven't actually got a rocket to safely return yet, but they've got really close twice. Um, so it was a one launch about, I think it was about three weeks ago, um, when they tried this for the first time, um, and where they actually took the rocket up into to orbit, I think, and then uh, brought it all the way back down, um, and tried to land it on a drone ship in the ocean. So this is basically a, a floating barge that, uh, that controls itself remotely. And yeah, they got really close. Um, in fact, the rocket, um, uh, landed on the platform but it landed a little bit too quickly in an angle and it exploded and uh, what happened was the um, they have some fuel um, hydraulic fuel that controls the fins at the top of the rocket that helps it land precisely and apparently um, it, they had to use the fin fins more than expected and the hydraulic fuel ran out just before it landed um, so that was why it crashed so it was obviously a very easy fix I just added more hydraulic fuel the next time um, and so they just recently, yesterday, they launched uh, their latest Falcon 9. Um, it went up and it took the um, uh, Disto Discover probe up to orbit. Um, and um, the Discover probe is actually quite interesting. It's um, it, uh, sitting at the Langrange point. I don't know how you pronounce it, Langrange? I don't Langrange. know. It's the point between um, Earth and the Sun, L1, where... Um, uh, gravity is equal, so basically the 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 um, item can exist without having to exert any force, and so you can basically send uh, you know a piece a piece of mechanics up into this location. It will just stay there permanently, and so basically this uh, probe is sitting between. Uh, well, it will be soon sitting between the sun and Earth, um, and it's able to monitor um, space weather. So how much um, uh, radiation is coming from the sun? So it's kind of going to be like an advanced warning if there's a solar storm uh, about by about an hour, which can be very useful. Um, and also does a whole bunch of monitoring of Earth as well. So it takes pictures and it uh, does a bunch of testing of um, sort of net energy absorption. So we can actually tell a lot more information about go global warming and that kind of stuff. Um, it's actually really interesting. It was Who, Who's um, funding all of this? Um, I'm not too sure. Actually, th it may. I think it might be a US government thing because it was originally, I think, um, promoted and conceived by Al Gore. Um, but when he lost the presidential election, that the whole thing was uh, scrapped. Um, he invented the internet, didn't he? Well, he invented so <laughs> many things. Um, so I don't know if he invented this or he just just I don't think obviously he didn't invent it, but he he obviously was a big uh, proponent of it. And um, yeah, no, so it's finally gone up now, long quite a long time after it was originally intended to go. But um, but yeah, no, it's exciting. Anyway, sorry, I got sidetracked. So the Falcon Nine rocket itself, so it did take the probe up, um, and it did come down successfully. Um, but because there was uh, st really stormy weather near um, near near the Cape, 
Um, they couldn't uh, position the barge. They didn't bother trying. Um, and so it basically just landed on the water. Um, so if it hadn't been so stormy, because um, I think they were like three meter high waves or something, it hadn't been so bad, then um, then they could could have successfully landed on the barge. So they're very close. They've kind of proven it all. Hopefully the next time they'll actually get on the barge and it will actually be there successful. Um, and yeah, first first proper reusable rocket. It'll be very cool. Space space flight innovation has been pretty slow, but probably because uh, the money the money involved and, and all of that. I mean, but uh, you know, so dangerous as well. And yeah, uh, the, the stakes are high. The, the stakes are mm. high. The other thing is um, that Virgin have just recently announced, I think today, um, that um, that they're starting to build a facility um, for launching uh, much smaller. Um, payloads into space i think it's about 500 pounds but they're going to be able to do it every three or four hours so huge difference whereas you know like spacex is sort of um once every two weeks they can launch a rocket you know virgins can be able to put things these things up several times a day um and their approach is they use the plane i think it's called the um white knight so it's basically a really high flying specially designed plane um to take the rockets up and then the rockets kind of launch off that plane up into orbit and um and then deposit the payload. So that's that's the other approach, and that's just come out recently too. I think still very very early days, and there's still going to be a lot of uh, disasters and pr- and issues to iron out, and uh, and also even I mean mainly because you know as we know in our industry, I mean we we solve a lot of the issues because you can iterate very fast. You know they can't iterate fast, so you you're launching a rocket here or there, fixing up the mistakes, launching it here or there, like like it's. Yeah, you know, to iron out all the issues just takes generations almost. Well, well versions. Um, I mean, their their plane, the last version, um, just fatally crashed. Yeah, don't know if you heard about yeah. that. So that was, you know, that put back their program. But yeah, it just highlights you know how dangerous this this kind of stuff is. So there was one guy that survived from that, wasn't there? There I was think one person survived and one yeah. person didn't. Or something. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, yeah. crazy. I mean, look, it's um, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's uh, interesting to follow. B- big money, and uh, we'll see what benefits. I mean, I mean, air travel hasn't really evolved much in the last fifty years, and and you know, I think, I think, th- if anything, one of the spin-offs, spe- especially from Virgin's approach, you know, going into this low orbit, you know, instead of going, um, in sort of in a straight line, you go up and across and down, a lot, lot quicker. So from New York to London will be a lot quicker if they use that Virgin approach. If, if anything, maybe there'll be some sort of spin-off to existing conventional air travel, which really hasn't evolved much. In fact, we've devolved in a way. I mean, all the supersonic commercial planes, well, not that there were many, but you know, the, the, the Concords don't exist anymore. And um, so the, um, you know, no, not much progress. Maybe, the, maybe there's a little <coughs> bit more efficiency. Maybe it's a bit more comfortable. A bit more fuel efficiency, pollution, things like that. But you're still essentially flying the same plane as, you know, the, the 747, which came out in, in 1969, a long time ago. Yeah, no, it takes a long, long time for those things to evolve. I mean, it's obviously a lot safer. And, you know, the reason why these things do take so long is because once you get a solution that works and is safe and, you know, everybody's happy with it, it's very hard to, um, you know, to improve on it. You to sort of dramatically you then end up creating something that's temporarily much more risky so you know it's very hard to get people to invest in that so it has to be a really big leap forwards for um for that kind of progress to happen so 
Although the real cost of flying has dropped significantly, I don't know if that's uh, you know capitalist forces or um, you know costs of planes changing or it might be multiple factors. But um, anyway, you're listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter, the co-founders of Manage Flutter. If you haven't tried Manage Flutter, give it a go. You can uh, use it to help help you work faster and smarter on Twitter. We do a podcast every now and then. This is episode 55. You can tweet us at Monkey Podcast. Um, you can pop in your email address at itsamonkey.com and we will send you an email every time a podcast is published. We come out every two weeks at the moment, um, dabbling with going weekly, but um, at this stage, every two weeks. Um, so subscribe on iTunes, leave us a review, do everything that you need to do, help keep us going, um, just spread the word. Um, we're going to take a short break and then uh, we're going to chat to Nir Ayal. Um, about the psychology of notifications. Nir is the author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Stay with us. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. Checkdog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. You're back with Kevin Garber and the It's a Monkey podcast. We talk about everything relating to technology, startups, um, social media, you name it, we cover it. We're always looking for interesting personalities to talk with on the show, and we try to keep the podcast interesting for you. You're listening to episode number 55. And uh, at the end of my Skype line, coming to you straight from the Bay Area, I have Nir Ayel, who is uh, the author of a really interesting book called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Nir is also, uh, which um, the book was uh, on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. Uh, Nira has founded two startups, both of which were acquired, um, and I have him at the end of the Skype line to talk about um, the psychology of notifications. Nira, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Kevin. Thanks for having me. What, um, what led you to your, your, your fascination with notifications and this in intersection of uh, psychology, technology, and business, which has become uh, a, a very big part of our world? In, in the old days, computers were just, uh, you, you know, the computer department and a very technical, uh, you, you know, or computational element of our world. And now there's this, this beautiful, interesting, fascinating, crazy intersection where it just cuts across all aspects of our life. How did you sort of get onto the, into this particular niche? Yeah, so I, I spent several years in the gaming and advertising business, and uh, let's face it, these two industries happen to be dependent on mind control. Uh, you know, advertisers don't spend all those billions of dollars for their health. Uh, they spend that money because it changes people's behavior. And if you want to look at uh, the, the one of the one of the purest forms of uh, consumer psychology to manipulate user behavior. Uh, you know, you couldn't start at a better place than uh, in the gaming industry where games are designed step-by-step uh, step to change users' behavior along a particular path. So anyway, from, from the years uh, spent in those two industries, I saw that there were uh, lots of techniques used uh, to change user behavior. But unfortunately, you, there, well, there wasn't any kind of textbook or guide 
uh, for how to apply these techniques for good. And so what I wanted to do after my last company was acquired is I wanted to write this, this book that could give product makers, uh, entrepreneurs, intrapreneurs, anybody working on new products designed to change user behavior, uh, this, this guidebook, these, these principles, so that they could change habits for good. And that's really what the, what the core of the book is all about, is how do you change consumer behavior using the deeper principles of consumer psychology so that we can help people live happier, healthier, more connected, uh, more productive lives by creating these healthy habits. And I do know what you say uh, for good, and we'll get into some of the, the, the ethics of that just a, a little bit later. But we have a lot of people that listen to the podcast that are either um, uh, starting their own startups or want to start startups. Let, let's keep it simple for the moment. But if someone's building a product or um, is in a product role, what are, are some of the basics that are well known that, that, that we can? And let's assume at the moment it's, it's, it's all for good in a way. And, uh, you know, what are some of the elements that they should consider? in their product when uh, factoring in notifications to add value to their users and hence make their products more compelling? Sure. So notifications are just one part of the equation and they go into the entire product. That They're not, they're not separate. They're actually you know, part of what keeps users engaged uh, with the product experience are how people use what I call external triggers. And so the, the framework that I kind of work from in my book and a lot of my research has centered around is called the hook model. Uh, the hook model is this design pattern that connects the user's problem to your solution with sufficient frequency to form a habit. So it's through successive cycles, through these hooks, these four basic steps that user preferences are shaped that tastes are formed and that these habits take hold. And so if we want people to use our product uh, continuously, habitually, if we want them to check in uh, on their own uh, without having to eventually be prompted by advertising or spammy messaging, uh, if we want to create that mental association, we, we have to run people through these four steps of a hook. Uh, these hooks have four basic phases. It's a trigger, an action, a reward, and then finally an investment. And, and we can talk about each one of those phases. This is what I detail in the book. But the uh, notifications or any kind of messages, uh, they fall into the category of external triggers. External triggers are things that tell the user what to do next by giving them some piece of information as opposed to internal triggers, which are these associations where the information for what to do next is stored in the user's mind. So that's where we're eventually going. To create a habit-forming product, we eventually want to not even require notifications or any kind of external triggers. We want people to prompt themselves so that when we're feeling bored, we check YouTube or Reddit. When we're lonely, we hop on Facebook. When we're uncertain, we use Google. That's where these products eventually go. But to get there, we have to start with these external triggers. And so uh, I just published recently this article around, around what makes good triggers and the psychology of good triggers. And so there's a few basic tenets. For example, uh, good triggers are well-timed, that the closer the external trigger, the message, the notification is to the internal trigger, meaning the point in time when the user feels this itch, this need of uh, a sensation like boredom or loneliness or seeking connection or uncertainty, any one of these emotions, that's the best uh, time and place to send them these uh, these external triggers that are well timed. Uh, so one example that I give is, you know, I, I was in Toronto recently. Uh, I gave a, a talk for a client who had hired me, 
And I came back to my hotel. It was late at night. I was I was pooped. Uh, and then I, 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 I was I was tired, but I didn't want to get back to work. But yet I didn't want to go to sleep either. I was kind of almost restless. I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what. So lo and behold, that's the, the second that uh, the, the, the Foursquare app sent me a notification that said, did you know that in your hotel, there's a bar on the top floor that is rated one of the top 10 bars in North America? Well, that was an extremely well-timed trigger, right? It just happened to, to coincide. I mean, they, they, they geolocated where I was as soon as I walked into my hotel. That's when I got this notification. Uh, at this time of night when I actually could find this very useful. And of course, I swiped, saw more about the bar, and then headed upstairs and went to check it out. So that would be an example of a well-timed trigger. Uh, other key tenants are that good triggers are actionable. You know, a lot of companies send people notifications and messages and emails with without an explicit message for what to do next. And so that is absolutely critical that you tell the user what to do with each notification. Uh, another thing, uh, finally, is that good triggers spark intrigue, that uh, one of the phases of every hook is a variable reward. And so we have to make sure that there's this bit of intrigue, this bit of mystery, this bit of the unknown uh, that users come back to want to check these apps because of this bit of intrigue. Uh, so when we send a notification, there needs to be some bit of mystery, some bit of the unknown that brings users back to the app again. I mean, Nir, are we, are we moving to a situation where, or we're probably already in a situation where, um, you know, machines, for lack of the, or, you know, big data knows more about us than we know about ourselves, can preempt, um, you know, what's in our own interests even better than we can ourselves. And your, your bar example is a terrific example of that, where it actually knew that there was better than you what you would actually enjoy that that fits in with you that 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 coincides with with your needs it's sort of i mean there's a little bit of a, a sort of spookiness to it isn't there uh welcome to 2015 uh this, this is the new reality we live in today uh for better and for worse i mean the, the, a, a big reason why i wrote this book you know there's two main reasons why i wrote hooked number one reason is because i want to help product make uh, you know, I've started two companies. I know how difficult it is to uh, build products that people actually use. And so I know that the vast majority of, of, of entrepreneurs out there, of innovators, of people who want to make great products, they're not struggling with overuse. They're not struggling with people, you know, using their products too much. Quite the opposite. You know, the vast majority of entrepreneurs are struggling with getting anybody to even care that their product sure. exists. And so that's who I wrote this book for, is if you're, you're building a product to create a healthy habit in people's lives, to make their lives better, and by and large, I believe that these technologies do make our lives better. I, I'm not a Luddite. I love technology. I use it myself, and I'm constantly looking for, for new ways to improve my life through these technologies. I think they're fantastic. But the other big reason I wrote this book was because I believe the world is becoming a potentially more addictive place. And so it's only by understanding these phases of these hooks, how these hooks work, that these products that bring us back time and time again, these are not happening. Uh, these products do not bring us back uh, and create these habits by accident. Uh, these, these guys didn't get lucky. Uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest and Slack, these guys didn't get lucky. There's, they either tested into or they very strategically used much of the psychology of what keeps people engaged. And so I think it's it's behooves us to understand how consumer psychology 
gets us to keep checking our devices and keeps, keeps us coming back so that we can do something about it. It's only by understanding how these products work that we can put technology in its place, make sure that we control our, our technology habits so that our technology habits don't control us. I mean, you, you mentioned in the article that was in TechCrunch, the psychology of notifications, um, you know, obviously the Pavlovian example, the very famous Pavlovian example. Um, I mean, what, I mean, Facebook obviously is the, the classic, um, you know, gold standard of getting a lot of this right, in, in my opinion. I'm interested, right. in, I'm interested to know, though, I mean, is there actually, you know, this, this, there is a chemical element. It, it really reduces down as low as that. I mean, it is, each time there's a Facebook notification, I would imagine there's, there's the equivalent or an actual dopamine hit, right? Sure. So uh, well, there is certainly a lot of things, very interesting things happening in our, in our brains uh, when, we, when we hear a ping or a buzz, uh, uh, you know, some people have have uh, an association that's so strong that there's the, even this uh, this phantom ring effect phantom, that yeah. uh, we 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 feel the phone vibrating even though it's not because we just happen to be thinking about it for a minute and and we instantly check our devices and uh, so there's certainly a lot of interesting uh, brain uh, science happening here uh, that that gets us to continually check our devices. What what I focused on in the book is some of this psychology that. That product makers can uh, can practically use. You know, I, I was a little frustrated because uh, I found a lot of books around behavioral economics and consumer psychology uh, and, and even interface design and uh, human computer interaction, but a lot of it uh, I, I found didn't blend these two fields very well. There wasn't really a, a guide to how to use consumer psychology uh, to influence behavior for good. Uh, I didn't. I didn't find that guide. I wanted something very practical and very uh, actionable for the product makers, and so that's that's why I wrote this book. I think there's a huge potential in terms of marrying notifications with the quantifiable self. I mean, I would I would mm. love this intelligent, um, you know, layer that monitors all my internal physical systems and notifies whether I should should eat x more of this x more of that sleep more of this just totally to sort of you know optimize things i think there's huge potential in that area and obviously wearables are just the absolute first stage of that but i think we're going to see massive developments in that space i i truly hope you're right and and you know there will be i guarantee you that there will be uh bads that come out of these goods as well right i mean i think there's a lot of potential there's a lot of things that can improve our lives and every you know we, this this is nothing new this technology uh cycle of a product coming to market that deals with some kind of human need right some kind of tool that that uh, uh allows us to fix a problem in some way and then as a as a result creates other problems and so i think that's what we're seeing now we're seeing that we've We've kind of wholesale adopted many of our technologies, and by and large, they're great, right? I don't want to go back to a world before iPhones and before Facebook and before email and before Twitter. I mean, these things are wonderful. I, I love these products. Now, but we're, what we're also seeing is that, you know what, there's also uh, a downside, that, that there's a price to be paid for many of these products, and part of the price to be paid is that, uh, that, that, that our attention is becoming increasingly a scarce commodity, that we need to be very careful about uh, not using these products to excess, uh, that, that we make sure that we keep our focus when we need it and that we don't allow these products to interfere uh, with other things we want to do in our life. But you know, by and large, the, the, these things at times are bad habits for people, 
but they're not full-fledged addictions, right? They don't harm people. We're not using Facebook intravenously like we do with heroin. Um, and so, and <laughs> they, so you know, they most, would love us to, though. But, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe. But but for most people, these are things that they can get under control. And so I'm very optimistic. You know, when it comes to wearables, uh, and I think you know, with biometrics, there's going to be all sorts of interesting ways that we can change consumer habits for good by having all this uh, data about what's happening inside our bodies. Well, what worries me a little bit about, I mean, you, th I mean, you said Facebook isn't, you know, it's not taken intravenously, but I've noticed quite a lot of people comment about their Facebook use and that they can't actually control it. And, and they, they, you know, words similar to an addiction, like it's like, um, uh, you know, it's just, I wish I could get off this thing. So I, I think there certainly is a segment of the population that goes too far that uh, is actually addicted, where by definition, an addiction is a, a compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance. And it's something that unlike a habit, which we have good habits and bad habits, addictions are always bad, right? Addictions hurt the user and they can't stop. And so I, there's a very, there's a, I was very uh, deliberate in that I did not call my book How to Build Addictive products. I titled the book "How to Build Habit-Forming Products" because habits can be used for good, and so we would never want to create addictions in our user because, again, the, the addictions hurt people. Now, what, what the, the the good news is, and why I'm I'm uh, I'm mildly optimistic is that you know we have to remember that addiction is nothing new. That addiction has been around for a very long time, and addictive products have been around for a very long time. But what's different now? is that unlike addictive products of the past, to say alcohol, right? Alcohol has been around for, for thousands of years and people have been intoxicated and even alcoholics for a very long time. But if you were a manufacturer of an alcoholic drink, you could kind of throw up your hands and say, well, we don't know who the alcoholics are, right? We don't know who's getting drunk. But for the first time, these connected products know, right? They know how much time people are spending on these products. And so I think, and this is what I've written about several times uh, for TechCrunch and other publications, that I call upon companies building potentially addictive products to have what I call a use and abuse policy. Some kind of number that they should have that says that's too much. So maybe Facebook should reach out to you. If you're using Facebook 40 hours a week, if you're playing the Kim Kardashian game, you know, 50 hours a week, if you're, if you're playing... Uh, Candy Crush up to a certain degree, maybe they should reach out to you and say, you know what, you match a similar profile to somebody who is using this product to an unhealthy degree because they know how much people are using these products. Now, whether they actually do something about it is a whole nother story, but the fact that they know gives me hope um, because for many of these products, they don't need or want addicts. Like they, they don't need, Facebook doesn't need you to be addicted to, to the product. Now, other products like free to play games that's a different question. And so there's kind of an ethical dilemma. What happens when a product relies upon addicts? That's kind of a whole nother ethical question. Are there, are there any products or gaming systems or networks that actually do have any notifications like that or for any flags? Yes, actually, uh, there's a company called Stack Overflow. You know Stack Overflow, sure. I'm guessing. Every, sure. every engineer in the world knows Stack Overflow, right? It's the world's largest technical question and answer site. Sure. Uh, 5,000 questions get answered every single day. And the founder, one of the founders of Stack Overflow, Jeff Atwood, when I, when I talked to him about this policy they have, uh, told me that they have this policy where if you spend more than, I think it's 20 hours a week on Stack Overflow, uh, you can't earn any more points after a certain amount. 
And so the reason he did this, the reason he put this in place is, one, he saw that the, the community actually suffered when, when people participated so much and became kind of obsessed about uh, earning more upvotes that the quality suffered. And two, he wanted Stack Overflow to be something that enhances users' lives as opposed to something that becomes their life. So that's an example of a company that has already built in breakers uh, into the system uh, so that people kind of slow down their consumption of the, of the product, their use of the product. And of course, there, there are use cases where um, in society where that acknowledges compulsive um, behavior in a bad way and, and short circuits it. I mean, the stock market is one of them. If it, you know, if it drops a certain percentage, they in a day they shut the market just to factor in that, that humans can be these compulsive get into these compulsive vicious cycles um, and of right. course I, I mean when gaming there's been many cases where um, young kids in, in uh, I mean the stories I've read usually in China or Hong Kong somewhere have played yeah. have gamed for so long that they've actually dropped dead literally right, right. Dead. Now, there's a kid almost every year that this happens to but you know, it, it's it's kind of fun to uh, to talk about the sensational news that's exceptionally rare. I, I want to reiterate again that you know th this is on the fringe that people get sure. addicted to these products. It's a very small minority of, product, of people who get addicted to these type of things. Uh, typically, there's a psychographic profile for someone who gets addicted to all sorts of different things, whether it's alcohol, drugs, compulsive gambling, sex addiction, or electronics. Um, there's a psychographic profile for that type of person. And, and, and again, you know, but just because there's a small minority of people who suffer doesn't mean we shouldn't do something about it. Quite the opposite. I think the fact that we can do something for these people to help them means we absolutely should do something to help them. But to put it in perspective, it's a very small proportion of the population. And for most people, uh, they, they don't get addicted to these things, right? Again, we're not using Facebook intravenously. Maybe it's a bad habit from time to time when we're feeling particularly bored or particularly lonely. We find it hard to, to focus because we find ourselves constantly distracted. But then we get into something that's more interesting and we leave it, right? The, we, that, this is what tends to happen with almost all addictions. Uh, the, the, the greatest recovery tool is time uh, that, that eventually people you know, move on from these things. They get tired of them and they, and they move on to the next thing. And so I, I think that these products have in their interest to keep people engaging at a moderate degree, but for a very long period of time. And I think that's what we're going to start seeing in the future. But again, for the vast majority of, uh, of people building products out there, they're not at all worried about overuse. Sure. Is that quite the opposite? You know, they want to get people to, to use the product in the first place. What do you think of Yo? You know, the app Yo? Yeah, so so Yo is interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't think... Uh, I don't think Yo raised their million-dollar seed round uh, purely because of Yo uh, in, in the app incarnation that we saw. I think I think there's a bigger play there in that um, the, you know sending easy to respond notifications within notification uh, within the notification itself was interesting, right? So that uh, you could see use cases for. Uh, sending these external triggers, sending these notifications, and then quickly whisking people through these four steps of the hook uh, as quickly as possible. And I think that's what Yo actually demonstrated. And what's actually interesting about Yo is that you can go through these four steps of the hook uh, without actually entering the app. You can do a lot with this product just through the iOS notification interface. I think um, where I saw app, uh, Yo having huge potential is just mainly just a configurable notification system. So you mm -hmm. know, v via their API, just all these use cases. I mean, I get a Yo when uh, Mark Andreessen 
starts one of his tweet storms and i actually oh. i actually quite like that um, it's terrific yeah i mean that's that's a great example of, of a really helpful trigger a really helpful trigger i mean mark andreessen's tweets are, are fantastic so i've spoken about them before on the podcast and sure i can always go back and look at them but uh, if i'm sitting on a bus and i happen to get a yo and be like yep sure i'll, I'll start following them um, there was also a product at TechCrunch last year built by sydney guys a product called uh, nativo and it was a really ambitious project to, to to an app that sort of passively sits on your phone and mines all sort of uh, uh, information that's publicly available, weather, trains, traffic, uh, you know, tr- um, monitors your Google Calendar and what you've been Googling and your Facebook and sort of matches the two and tries to get really intelligent at what it, at, at, and what it notifies you at. Very, very bold project. They were on the way, yeah. but but to get that right, if you don't get it exactly right, it, it lands up being a pain and in, in, right. you know, just, just painful. But there, yeah. but, but there are people that are giving the, this problem a go at solving. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the Mark and Dreesen tweet storm thing, by the way, uh, is, is an excellent example of, of intrigue, right? That you get that notification and then, you know, if it wasn't interesting, if it wasn't something that you, you knew you were going to be interested in, then it wouldn't be very useful to you. But you're you're intrigued to figure out, OK, what's Mark Andreessen going to say next? There's this bit of mystery. What's he what's he going to tackle? What's he going to what, what am I going to learn here? And you almost think um, that's something that Twitter should get on board with. I mean, Twitter's, you know, been having problems with user growth. And uh, w- one of the elements I think that Facebook is far better at is that their, their notifications hook you in from all sorts of angles, whereas Twitter's. You know, there's, there's, yeah, that intrigue. They struggle to, uh, they struggle to hook you in with, with intrigue. You almost got to discover it yourself or curate your own lists, or it leaves a lot of that up to you. Whereas Facebook somehow sort of guides you along a lot better. Right. Well, well, the biggest differentiation is that uh, Facebook can manipulate uh, the algorithm behind what you see and what you don't see. Whereas, uh, you know, you you don't see all your friends' uh, posts. They 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 have they you know facebook spends a lot of time figuring out whose posts you should see and whose posts you should not see why do they do that because of this critical fourth step of the hook uh i'm sorry the third step of the hook the the variable reward phase they're trying to figure out the right balance to keep the feed variable if it's too mundane if it's not very interesting you're not going to come back uh and so you need to have the right ratio between you know your aunt martha's boring post and your crazy college friend's interesting post and the, the, the little ad they put in there to keep you scrolling and scrolling, you need to find the right ratio of interesting to mundane posts. You can't just post everything. So they have all kinds of ways to figure out what you should see and what you should not see. Twitter has a problem because what happened over the past few years is that people followed a lot of people without any discretion around who actually tweets well and who doesn't tweet well. So our, our Twitter feeds have become kind of polluted with a lot of uninteresting tweets, and that makes people kind of fade off after time. And so you see things that Twitter has done recently where they put these, um, uh, these little curated blocks mm-hmm. of the best tweets from your network that you may have missed. And they're doing that specifically because they're trying to increase the ratio of rewarding tweets, interesting tweets, to the not very interesting tweets. Is there anything else you think Twitter can do? I mean, I think a lot about this problem. Obviously, we built a product on Twitter and uh, their user growth numbers. Are, I mean, in a way, their strength is their weakness. They still own the real-time space. And the real-time mm-hmm. space is, yeah, I mean, the, the strength is it's not an algorithm. And, and that's why Twitter owns the real-time space. Yeah. So, you know, I think where Twitter is nice is uh, as a consumer. 
And I think that for the vast majority of people, you know, it's the, it's the 1990 problem that it's 1% of the people create content, 9% of the people interact with that content or occasionally create content, and then 90% of the population just consumes. And it turns out that because of this variable reward problem of, you know, that this problem with the ratio of interesting to mundane content, uh, that 90% of the population falls out pretty quickly unless you get them to make stuff. So the critical, uh, you know, the first hump that Twitter had to get over was to get you to follow people, to go through their first hook, and the investment is following people so that you can become a content consumer. What Twitter has to do is to get people to start creating content, and that's where the magic behind Twitter really takes off. When you become a content creator and you start getting social feedback based on your tweets, I think then Twitter becomes a very habit-forming product. So if, if I were over at Twitter, I would try and figure out how can we get people to tweet more as opposed to just consuming what they're tweeting I mean, or what other people are tweeting. I mean, it's an interesting point you make because a lot of the people that I've spoken to about um, you know, Twitter and they, a lot of them say, I've registered my account, but I don't tweet. I'm scared of saying something stupid. A lot of right. them have actually said that, that exact same sentence because it's so public right. and there's all these famous people. They're scared of looking like idiots. That is a huge, huge barrier. And if you look at the second phase of the hook, the action phase, the action phase is all about the simplest behavior done in anticipation of reward. And when you think about what blocks action, what blocks a behavior, there's six basic elements, uh, time, money, physical effort, brain cycles, non-routine, and social conformity. And so the one that keeps coming up and keeps blocking the action for Twitter is this cognitive load aspect, this brain cycles of thinking, am I going to be judged? What should I say? Am I going to sound stupid? That is a huge barrier to action. So Twitter's got to figure out ways to make it easier for people to contribute to tweet in ways that are lower friction. I mean, some examples of that, the, some things you can do, and you know, it's iterated in other products. WhatsApp fixed this problem by making it small, intimate groups. So now the social pressure around being judged is reduced because there's just people I feel very close with. Instagram solved this problem by reducing the cognitive load of what to share by just snapping a picture. Right now, I don't have to think about what to, how I can be witty and if it's going to be judged. I can just snap a picture, and that's what Instagram is all about. So there's other ways to solve that. I mean, video actually, you know, uh, uh, Twitter adding video recently mm. tries to solve this problem. Uh, and so I think you're going to see them looking for other ways to make it easier to create content as opposed to just consuming it. I think they're really stuck in a corner because they, there's always the risk of uh, eroding your, um, you, you know, your core value and offering um, by doing something new. So they, they, they don't want to, you know, like the Craigslist, uh, you know, still hasn't, hasn't changed much. It's, it's working. Don't, don't, don't fix what's um, not broken. And, and in, in many ways, a lot is right with Twitter. So how can you keep what is right right and at the same time bolt on uh, added value along the way as well? Yeah, yeah. It's not easy. I mean, they, they've had a tremendous success story so far. And uh, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about Twitter. I, I would go long on Twitter, actually. I, I, I would also. I would also. Uh, Nier, it's been great talking to you. I know we've taken up a lot of your time. Nier Ayala, the author, uh, Nier Ayala is the author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Fascinating book. If uh, you're a product person, um, get hold of it. Nier, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for talking to us on the podcast. My pleasure, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. Manage Flitter helps you to work smarter and faster on Twitter. 
With Manage Flitter, you can schedule tweets for appropriate times, gain insight into your Twitter connections, grow your Twitter account, and much more. Go to manageflitter.com for a free trial. We're back, episode 55 of the It's a Monkey podcast with James Peter and Kevin Garber. Um, very, very interesting topic, James. Uh, notifications have become a very big part of our lives. Yeah, no, it was a really interesting talk. I've got to go and read his book now. It's, uh, yeah, very good, very good talk. It's um, definitely something that I find very interesting. Um, I really liked uh, liked his point about um, having some sort of uh, metrics on on people who are overusing systems and helping to mm. bring them back down. You know, providing that's not part of your business model. Um, you know, I think that is you, you know something that that is happening regularly now. That people become you know addicted to these systems because so good at kind of hacking. Um, you know, the human brain and getting people um, addicted in a bad way to, to some of these digital products. So, yeah, being, being smart about, um, about uh, pulling them back, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, really cool. Yeah, look, humans are, you know, we come from a, a, a primal world where our brains were engineered to um, seek out good things because they were far and few between. And in the modern world of... Um, you know, we, we, come, we come from a world of scarcity where scarcity was an issue and our brains evolved for scarcity. Now we live in a world of abundance, including dopamine hits, and we're not evolved for abundance and things can go overboard. But he, d- he also made the point that these are, you know, those are really, um, really small percentages where it's really that big a problem. Um, whether that's true or not, I, I, I would yeah. imagine with kids... You know, gaming with kids, uh, with with teenage boys, I would imagine is is more than a, you know, um, infrequent issue. Look, I mean, there's obviously isolated cases where it's a really dramatic issue, like you know, when somebody dies from overplaying a game. Like that's you know, incredibly rare. Um, but um, you know, just uh, <coughs> I mean, the more sort of general cases, obviously, you know, people who maybe they get addicted to one of these, you know. Uh, Facebook games or, or iOS games that are, that are out or mobile app games that are out and, um, and you know, they, they spend, you know, a little bit too much money, like $1,000 or something. Um, I mean, particularly all of the games that really do depend on, you know, the business model is basically to find and, and encourage those people who are willing to spend, you know, r- really far too much money um, on their products and that's how they, they monetize. They, they give most of it away for free. Um, with the aim of you know finding those one you know well not that that small percentage of people who do you know put an awful lot of money into them um, and yeah that's really tough I mean I think businesses um, do have to kind of you know consider <laughs> consider that when they start making you know models that uh, that depend on on those people and uh, and decide if that's really what they want to do and if there's some other way they can can solve that problem and and obviously these things do make a lot of money. Um, which is why they're so successful, um, but it doesn't mean it's the the right thing to do. Um, so yeah, it's tough. I mean, you do see it all the time. You know, you know, you might not hear about it because it's like you know, people you know, spending a thousand dollars or whatever. It's not like it's going to get on the news, but it's you know, if they don't have that thousand dollars to spend, mm-hmm. it's just as bad as you know, going down to the pub and you know, blowing that on the pokies or whatever on the get ga- on the. I don't know what they call them in the US. They don't call them pokies, slot machines. There yeah. you go. So but yeah, they, no, it's, they, it's a they big don't problem. have such easy access to them usually as we do. Actually, I think I think New South Wales is some of the most liberal 
pokey. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, Australia's far worse. In in the US, it's generally isolated. You've got to have certain have to, licenses, yeah. and most states are quite restrictive about it. It's only certain areas, and you have to drive. Mm. I mean, in Australia, everywhere you go to the local pub, and you got access to gambling yep. machines. Pretty much any any every any place where you drink has <laughs> yeah. some sort of All at of least them. one or two. So yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah. Look, I mean, one of the reasons I don't. I mean, when I was a teenager. Back in the dark ages, we had the the slot machines. It was twenty cents for a game, and I I loved them, you know, so much. The the old school asteroids and Phoenix, and I can't even remember some of the names. And um, but um, I sort of I sort of grew out of that. And you know, when the new wave of gaming came along with all the consoles, I actually intentionally don't even don't even try. I mean, my life's so busy. I'm just I'm not looking for things to take up time I just and one of the reasons I don't try them out is I, I actually don't want to get hooked and um, you know and I've I, I sort of steer clear away from the PS2 and the and um, you know all the I mean they look yeah. amazing I see look I mean uh, obviously you know console games and that kind of stuff I don't like they don't have necessarily these habit forming problems to the same extent um, but they're compelling though they're, I mean, they're compelling, compelling experiences yeah um, yeah yeah, definitely, yeah. And that's obviously where they, they make their money by making themselves compelling so people spend time in them. Um, I mean, I think the real problem is is when you then take that compelling nature of them and you encourage people to spend, you know, all mm. their time in them through and various money. mechanisms. And money, yeah. And, that's, and that is where, you know, things are going. And in fact, it turns out that if you make the game less compelling you actually do better at do better at making money out of people and get people to spend more of their time because they can kind of interleave it into their life a bit, a bit better. Um, and that's why, you know, there's this, this huge success of these, you know, little games on um, on mobile, you know, Farmville and Heyday or whatever is popular now that, um, that, that take up so much of people's time. It's just a really, um, you know, interest, a really powerful model um, that, you know, can really control people. Um, and it definitely takes choice away from people a little bit, I think. So doing that sort of ethically is um, is important. But as Nira said, um, you know, most people, and we, we in the startup <coughs> game, most people are struggling with, or product creators struggling with the way the other side of the equation, you know, is uh, um, getting people to use our product. And, uh, and, and that's the wrong way of phrasing it, in a way, is, is really understanding how to create the value and 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 to m and which makes which makes it compelling. I mean, people, you know, when they tell us they sit on managed Twitter the whole day, it's because it's it's doing something useful for them, you know. So um, it's 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 really it's a it's an end result of solving a problem, you know. Um, but the games as a whole, yeah, it's it's, it's a whole different um, whole different. Uh, maybe emotional problem that it's said. And when I say problem, I don't mean pathological problem. I mean, uh, y y you know, people like excitement and adventure and it's, it's, it's tapping into. Mm. Um, it's, it's only going to become worse with VR as well. <laughs> yeah, virtual reality. It's going to be in these things. And augmented <laughs> reality. Yeah, no, it won't, won't be possible to escape it. So. And, and the, ultimate, the ultimate problem is that time is limited. I mean, if, if we can on a metaphysical slash physical level slash solve that one and somehow scale time, I know it sounds very trippy and, uh, you know, but if we can somehow well, you know, work I think that out. I think the interesting thing about VR actually is it probably does actually scale time in, in a very weird way. I mean, if you can, um, 
virtually exist any if if it, you know theoretically you know uh, a virtual world is as um as real as a as a physical world um you know in, in most senses you know particularly in, definitely in terms of sight and sound i mean it's still a long way off but it's definitely possible then um you know you could exist anywhere in the world instantaneously so the problem of travel and um and um and moving between places which is a huge time sink if you want to look at it that way is um is kind of sold by virtual reality so i think in some ways it actually does um does do interesting things to time which i think might be partly why it's so compelling it's um, got to be re- it's, it's it's got to be really good though i mean it's, it's got to be really good yeah but it, it's it's gonna be really it'll get there it's got it's, it's got to be an analog so instead of going instead of meeting a friend who lives in another city um you know you can both meet on virtual reality thailand and hang yeah. out well it, it's going to be better i mean definitely because obviously you know the physical world is limited by reality and the laws <laughs> of nature whereas the virtual world is not so um as soon as it gets close to um as close to uh, you know being real there's a certain point where it becomes better quite quickly so that's the that's the interesting point anyway that's vr that's a whole nother story yeah well it's a, it's an interesting i mean that's what i think about a lot is you know time 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 is the the ultimate challenge to scale that and to solve the issue of uh, linear limited time um and if we ever will work out, I know it sounds very um, esoteric, but if we ever will work out how to solve that problem, you know, then then all sorts of all sorts of other um, challenges fall away. But um, anyway, that's that's for another discussion. Um, we'll put the show notes up, a link to Nira's Twitter account and uh, Nira's book. Um, we are going to be talking in uh, the next podcast about Apple, um, some some counter. Um, there was an article on Harvard Business Review about how, how uh, Apple's reaching its peak and its, its numbers aren't as good as the numbers actually say. And I tracked down the author who's a professor of business in Barcelona University in Spain and he's going to be talking to us on the next podcast. So um, look out for that in two weeks. Tweet us, email us. Um, I'll actually, James, I pulled up an email um, it's talking of notifications and products that I thought, um, you know, some of my friends say we don't uh, talk enough about Manage Flutter in our podcast and people are interested in Manage Flutter. So anyway, we got in, we get quite a few, you know, uh, kudos emails and tweets, which is terrific. Um, we've worked hard and, you know, on the product and, and James has, has done a fantastic job on, on core elements. And uh, I thought, well, I'll read this up so people can can see when you get things right the um, how we do add value to people's lives um, so we got an email from one of the managed Flutter users um, I haven't run this by him to read it out I won't actually read his name out but he wrote uh, I'm sure with several of the large companies you guys work with you receive a lot of accolades but I wanted to do take a brief second to thank you as a team as well there are several things about managed Flutter that has been, I mean, thoughtfully put together by a team that seems small to many people, but for someone like myself who hardly has time and is a one-person team makes a huge difference. The UI is extremely efficient and easy to use. Being a small business person, some months are tighter than others money-wise, and I've had to cancel and resign, da-da-da, and each time the billing has been absolutely accurate. Even upgrading between a single pro account to a five pro account has been billed correctly, and you'd be shocked how many service providers cannot even get that right. You guys are awesome. Another huge time saver for me is that when I did cancel... I noticed all of my power mode filters were still saved when I came back. I don't have to reconfigure them. Little things like that are just a couple of reasons I will always use Managed Flutter and want you to thank your team. Seems like dumb little things, but that kind of 
service details are what keeps customers loyal and a, and a huge um, base. A model I try to follow and I love seeing companies I use. I'm sure thousands of people are thankful for the same little things that just don't have time to write you. Keep doing awesome things. Anyway, I saved that email. I don't know if you read it when it came through. Uh, yeah, I think I did on the post on Yammer. Yeah, I think yeah. I did it there. And I think the point is that, you know, talking about nearest, you, you know, tying into the, with the discussion around near notifications and product and everything that um, the little things, the little things, you know, uh, uh, make a huge difference. Yeah. Little things make up life. Little, little <laughs> things. Each little. Life is, life is a whole bunch of little things. And I think people that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, it's very trendy to want to build a startup and have a startup. And I think that's great in many ways. But like with a lot of things, like be wanting to be a, a rock star, an actor, whatever, it's, it's, the reality is always less glamorous, you know. And, and a startup is, is, uh, the, the fun part uh, is, is, you know, when you get emails like this and you see your user numbers grow is fantastic. But, but boy, do we have to deal with a lot of, you know, mundane issues and, um, you know, which I think some, some of the aspiring, you know, tech startup people don't, don't always, don't always realize. It's a tough path, but it's, uh, it's got its value. It's yeah. got its good times. Yeah, it's, uh, w- it's, it's, it's worth it, but it's uh, definitely... Definitely not all glamour, and the little things, the little things, and there, and there's a, a million little things, um, are, are definitely, definitely uh, not as glamorous. But anyway, um, that's about it for episode number 55. Thank you so much for listening. Tweet us, email us. Um, you can comment on the stories at theintermonkey.com, and we will catch you in two weeks' time for episode 56. Bye. Have a good one.